0: me here, uh, for trusting me, and I was I was telling Kyle over lunch that I, I try to be very sensitive to the fact that when we come together for worship, the focus on uh, worship needs to be our God and our Father, and that there's a good many, I believe rightfully so, that would probably be very sensitive uh, if we turned worship service into a psychological class. And so, I want you to know that in the preparation for uh, this weekend and that sort of thing, I wanted to be uh, very mindful of, of taking the, the approach that the Bible and this topic are actually very harmonious with one another, that God is actually uh, aware of, and tuned into uh, the things that we go through while we walk on this earth. And that includes our emotional well-being, and that includes our mental health. And so this morning, as I preached to you and I shared a Bible class with you, pretty freely. Tonight, I aim for the same thing, and so for that reason, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to start us out tonight. If you will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. go to verse 12, and we're going to talk about that for just a little bit. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. And it simply says this, and you can read prior to this, again, it begins with the word, therefore. So I would encourage you to do that. And you can read the following verses, because it has some very powerful things uh, contained therein. Uh, But we're going to focus on verse 12. And it says this, therefore let Him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. I'm going to ask you to turn over to Galatians chapter 6 with me as well. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter six verse three says this: For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, then he deceives himself. And then going on to verse four, it says, "But let each one examine his own work, reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another." These two verses I want to start. Out, I want us to start out with tonight because I believe that the apostle Paul. Uh, who wrote these two passages uh, to the church at Galatia and the church in Corinth a long time ago, actually gave us a pretty incredible glimpse into the topic that we're going to talk about tonight in Buford, Georgia, uh, you know, a couple millennia later, um, and as we're talking about mental health in Christians. What he actually addresses is a very very integral part of learning to cope with the cycle of addiction. So let me talk about the cycle of addiction really quickly. I need to talk about two things tonight, and I, and I hope to get to both of them, the allotted time. There's the individual cycle of addiction, and then there is the people that feed into addictions and I need to very carefully handle that second one because a lot of times if you are a loved one of somebody that is addicted to something then you can hear what I need to say about that second portion in somewhat of a judgmental way and it is never intended to be a judgmental thing when we discuss kind of the the roles that uh, we play in such a system. So, Let's talk about the individual cycle of addiction. We, Auburn either just scored a touchdown or it's on the screen. Auburn didn't score a touchdown. Okay, so it's on the screen. Well that's good. Alright, thank you guys for your hard work back there. We are up and running and we're good to go. Alright, so um, that's perfect timing, because let's get now to, we just read our verses, and let's get to this slide. I don't know how, okay, good deal. I would encourage you all, even though it is up on the screen, you can, you can zoom in and take a picture of that. Or if you're the kind of person that learns better by writing things down, which I am, um, you can go ahead and begin to replicate that on your own individual piece of paper. But somehow, way, I would encourage you to be able to encode this into your memory. It's going to be valuable for you to be able to look at addiction in a different way, in a non-judgmental way, because judgment feeds addiction. So let's talk about the individual cycle of addiction tonight. I think it's in the air, guys. My computer's now frozen, (laughs) so I'm going to go off of that screen. Okay. Well, I'm glad y'all got up and running right as mine froze up. Okay. So, um, yeah, there's a laser pointer. That's good. Let's let's take a look at what we have here. I'm going to ask you to notice a few things about this cycle. that we have up on the screen. First of all, it's, it's a circle, okay? Uh, second of all, you'll notice that there's a descending nature to this arrow here, and there is an ascending nature to this arrow here. And then there's two basic uh, positions on this circular cycle here. And up at the very top, I want to reassure you that that letter G is lowercase on purpose, not out of disrespect to our God and Father. That is what is called the God position in uh, in addiction treatments. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But that's actually not a great thing. The most commonly known thing in, in addictions is when somebody with an addiction hits rock bottom. Life falls apart. The, uh, you know, the, the picture of themselves that they were able to cast uh, <clears throat> to friends, family, and society gets unraveled. They get found out um, and that sort of thing. And they are made to kind of face what it is that they have been doing what it is that uh, they've held as a secret for so long. They've been maybe holding it together and then it just unravels. So pretty much everybody knows that you gotta hit rock bottom. The, the classic saying is you gotta hit rock bottom before you can get helped. And that's, that's, that's pretty true, okay? So let's talk about those two positions in just a moment after we talk about this middle uh, thing here, okay? This is called the zone of right relationship. And I'm going to unpack that and explain that to you further in just a moment, okay? So up here at the God position is the reason why that is not a desirable place to be. Is that somebody that is addicted to anything, to a person, (laughs) to bad relationships, to substances, to viewing things, whatever, when they are at the God position, they are actually at the most vulnerable part of the addiction cycle. The inner communication that goes on in, uh, while you're at the God position is you're proud. You pat yourself on the back. You talk about how you defeated this thing and that sort of thing. Typically speaking, if you know somebody that struggles with addiction and they speak in terms, in definitive terms, of how they are, be- they have beat it, they're over it, that sort of thing, prepared to help them once again. They may fully believe that. That may be what they're experiencing at the moment, but what they are doing is uh, uh, thinking that they stand. And if you were to go back to the home slide there, there's basically two different positions that those gentlemen are, are taking. And that's probably like a victorious, maybe thankful t- kind of position here on the right side, but that represents the God position. Yes! I'm over it. I defeated it. Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's the verse for the God position. Whenever there is a a moment of victory, prepare to ask for help if that's what you're struggling with, or prepare to stand in the gap for your loved one if they are the addict. Now, let's take a, a little path downward here. Mm-mm, I messed up. <laughs> I pressed the wrong button. There we go. Alright. Let's take a little uh, you know, stroll down this path here. That path can be a very quick journey or that path can be a very long journey. Um, once you once you experience a God-position type thought or emotion. What typically happens, let's take an alcoholic, for example. The alcoholic um, that experiences sobriety after hitting rock bottom, maybe their finances are all gone, maybe their relationships have finally, you know, all been destroyed and that sort of thing, and they're left to face themselves in, in their, you know, in, in their disease, in their addiction. Well, the alcoholic may experience quite a while with sobriety. And then when that thought occurs in the God position, what the alcoholic will then begin to do, instead of saying, staying completely clear of any and all possible trigger situations, they'll begin to say, okay, well, I can go back to that barbecue. Yes, I know my friends will all have alcohol there, but I can go back to that barbecue and I can abstain. I've defeated this. And so there's, there's a little journey maybe to right there. And then, uh, you know, Maybe they uh, begin going and watching sports and stuff like that, you know, and and going to get wings with the guys and stuff like that, and and they begin to make these over assumptions of how powerful they are over their triggers that take them down. The reason why I like uh, explaining things with this uh, cycle picture here is because it is, is very self-explanatory. If you notice, if you pretended like that was maybe like a slide, once you start down, it'll, it'll, it'll just take you. And so when you start to overassume how powerful you are over your triggers, it is what we call the slippery slope and maybe you like the person that you became when you were sober, and so you try very hard to look sober, but you begin to start having anxiety about how close you're getting to messing up once again. And so there begins to be this complex interaction with self and with triggers until, at last, the addiction has um, displayed itself in full force once again. And you cycle back to to rock bottom. You hit rock bottom and there's no pride. Up here there's nothing but pride. And you empty yourself of all pride and you confess and you're open and you do the things, you're transparent, you do, you do the things that you have to do in order to address your addiction, you're, you're ashamed of yourself, you don't quite understand how you got back here because you were doing so well for so long, and then you were so proud of yourself, and then all of a sudden, it kind of slips back down and your eyes are open again and you're, I am right back to where I was and it's not that you want to be there but you are there and it may not be as pronounced of a rock bottom again because a lot of times when once you experience a true rock bottom rock bottom is an emotional thing i cannot believe i did it again i cannot believe that i put that beer to my mouth i cannot believe that i did you know i did whatever it was that i did i Man, I thought I was over this. And the problem then becomes, uh, the, the problem stems from the language of getting over your addiction or defeating your addiction. When you take on addictions with a versus mentality, You're setting yourself up to be perpetually cyclical with the addiction. You're setting yourself up to ascend, feel good about yourself, be really glad that you have sobered up in whatever you've been engaging in, and then you cycle back slowly, 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 and then you kick yourself in the rear end for doing the stupid things that you knew not to do again, and then you go back. The key to this is, right here, this middle portion, the the equator, right there. What we call the zone of right relationship. The zone of right relationship speaks of your relationship with the addiction not the competition with the addiction, but the relationship with the addiction. Because here's a fact, and this may sound sad to to people, um, and I get that, but for the rest of life, you will have a relationship with the addiction. Now, it may be a relationship that's manageable. It may be a relationship that um, is a distant one because things have been manageable for a while, but if you ever leave the narrative of relationship with the addiction, you set yourself up to going back up to the God position. The zone of right relationship says this, and this is the most important phrase for anybody that is addicted to anything. The greatest power that I have over my addiction is to admit that I have no power over my addiction. If you want to have power over your addiction, go back to the home screen and experience life in this man's posture. Humble recognition that this thing that you're addicted to, whatever it may be, has this power over you that you yourself will never be able to fully put away. And so therefore, there's some things that need to happen. You need to recognize the micro things that go on in your mind when trigger situations come around. I know of somebody that um, has a pretty high-level job. He has an addiction that he has struggled with for years. And whenever he meets with all of these extremely high-level executives and his nationwide company and that sort of thing, he has a business card with his wife's name on it and he orders water, and he hands these business cards out to all these executives as they're boozing it up and drinking all of these top-shelf liquors and that sort of thing, and he tells them, if you see my hand go on a glass of one of y'all's drinks and not on my glass of water, you call my wife immediately. And that's strange for them, and he says, I'm, I am not going back I cannot do that again. That is one of my first things. I have to do this because of my job, and I I have to be around y'all, and this is my guard to make sure that I don't get back on that cycle. And he is so forthcoming with what he is struggling with that it is embarrassing. It is embarrassing to the men sitting at the table with him, the men and women sitting at the table with him, but he doesn't mind the embarrassment because he knows the pain of rock bottom. And so he is completely open with them. That is his way. He has experienced his triggers enough to understand that if he goes into a situation completely unprepared, he will act out again. And so he makes it where he can't. So, what is it that, that is triggering you? Is the question that you have to ask in the zone of right relationship. What is it that I can do if I've got this job, or if I've got this situation, or if there's something that I perceive that I cannot change about an external circumstance, what is it that I can do about that circumstance? Is it a business card with your wife's or your husband's name or number on it, name a number on it, so that you can call and be accountable to them? Is it leaving your phone out in the open where history and everything can be accessible very easily? Is it, um, you know, securing an app or some software where, you know, it'll provide a report to, to people that you've heard in the past and that sort of thing? Whatever it is, when you're tired of experiencing rock bottom, it's time to come into the zone of right relationship where you say, I cannot defeat this, I need to be vulnerable to the people that I hurt in order to not hurt them anymore and in order to manage my relationship with this addiction. Remember the zone of right relationship. The greatest power you have over your addiction is to admit that you have no power over your addiction alone. Therefore, you need to be vulnerable. Therefore, you need to be transparent. Therefore, you need to, hey, guess what else we're told to do in the church? Confess. And confession, um, the way God designed it, has a little bit of necessary pain, but a lot of necessary cleansing when we decide to be vulnerable with the people that we hurt. So let's talk about uh, something that's not on this slide and I really wish that this was kind of a class situation and 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 maybe we can close out a little bit early and do a, a little bit of Q&A uh, because this is kind of very theoretical and if again statistics hold true, there's a number of you in the audience tonight that are either experiencing this or have experienced this with family members or loved ones. So I would love to be able to do that, but it might not be the right setting. So, let's talk about families then. There is a notion out there, um, if you read the book, Codependent No More by Melody Beatty, you'll read this in there. That there has never been someone that was addicted to something that was not in a codependent relationship. So, let me talk to that real quick. Codependency is simply this. When parts of the family become responsible for managing the emotions of other parts of the family, when it becomes your job as a member of a family or a member of a friendship or a relationship of whatever kind to think ahead, predict the reactions and, therefore, call the shots of what you do in order to manage or maneuver around the reactions of the people that you love. That's the basics of codependency. And what happens in, in uh, families, especially with families of addicts, is there's this over-concern of hurt feelings. There's, there's, there's a hundred or more different concerns that go on. Between an overconcerned, very loving person in the family and the person that is addicted. The last thing that an addict needs is for somebody to be managing their emotional reactions. But very close to the last thing that a person who is addicted to something needs is to be preached at because there's what's called the cycle of shame when it comes to addictions as well. Because a person that is addicted to something is very well acquainted with the feeling of shame. Most addicts rise to the level of self-hatred at some point or another. Most addicts really do not like themselves. They don't like what they have become. And so when we, as family members, kind of through noble reasoning and that sort of thing, begin preaching at the addict, get your act together, get off the couch, do something with your life, I'm not going to support you forever, and that sort of thing, then uh, it feeds into the cycle of shame. Well when you begin to feel shame as an addict, guess what you do? You turn to the coping mechanism that is your actual device that takes you down. And so the family member that meant to do good by providing a sermon, by providing scripture, by by providing a clear picture, just fed into the cycle of shame, which feeds into the cycle of addiction, and it activates the addict's addiction. And so I was asked a very good question this morning after the class on depression. How do we as family members participate in the recovery of somebody? And the situation for this morning, it was, the person was asking about depression and that sort of thing, but how do we as family members participate in the recovery of somebody in our family without becoming an enabler. So let me talk to that real quick. First of all, you need to draw boundaries. Let them know that consequences are very real. Let the consequences be very scary. And let the consequences speak for themselves. You work on yourself as the loving family member because the day may come when the addict tests your ability to stand firm on the boundaries that you draw. And at that point, if you don't act on the boundaries that you set, then you've just codependently re-entered into the cycle of addiction. So set boundaries. Make them believable. Make them big enough that it is a deterring factor for the person that is addicted. So that in their mind, if they go back to this, what they will lose for going back to it isn't worth participating in, in the addiction. So draw boundaries. Secondly, ask questions. Don't ask leading questions as though they are a witness on a stand in a courtroom. Ask questions out of love, ask questions out of uh, betterment, and you know the person that you're with. You know how they behaved when they were on the descending side of the cycle, you know how they behaved when they were on the ascending side of the cycle, and so when you ask questions and you get answers, you have a feeling of how honest they are being with you. And those are going to be uncomfortable conversations, but they are necessary uncomfortable conversations. When somebody is experiencing an addiction, there's not really anything comfortable about life again. and So you've got two options. You can be comfortable, relatively, and deal with an addiction, or you can be uncomfortable and you can have relative assurance that the addiction relationship is manageable. It's the families and it's the couples and that sort of thing that are willing to sit down and and, and have, you know, receipts all out in the open and, you know, just everything vulnerable with one another that are the ones that are able to keep the addict in the zone of right relationship and maintain sobriety. And I hope that this helps tonight. I hope that this does not come across as judgmental tonight. You never really start out asking to be an addict. You might experiment. You might be exposed. You might do something stupid. Make a real bad decision one night for, uh, you know, a chemical that's way too strong for the human brain to say no to once you've experienced it. Rarely does the addict say, hey, 10 years from now, I want to have a family but also be struggling with this addiction and I want to ruin everything. That's my goal. That's my 10-year goal. Five-year goal is to be active in the addiction, okay? Um, Never does an addict do that. The addict, small step by small step by small step by small step, experiments with what becomes the addiction until they find themselves in the position of rock bottom and they say, oh, my goodness, that got real and I never thought that I would have to experience that. So, if you're experiencing addiction yourself, if you know somebody on the cycle of addiction, there's always hope. If you're experiencing somebody that's a loved one that's on the addiction cycle and is is trying to learn to manage it, take care of yourself, so that you can take care of them. Be there for them. Encourage vulnerability. Encourage them to have somebody that they can be accountable to. Let them be accountable to you. Check in on them. Don't talk down. Don't engage in the cycle of shame. Be open. Addiction can be something that can be managed. Addiction can be something that you can look back on and say it's been a long time since I've acted out on my, my addiction. My triggers are in my head. I know what I'm, I know what I'm triggered by. And I am always aware. But the number one thing that we all need to remember when it comes to addictions is that when we think we are something, when we are nothing, we are deceiving ourselves, and when we think that we're standing in victory is the moment that we begin the process of falling to our knees in defeat. So stay humble, stay ready to admit, and stay in the zone of right relationship so that you can enjoy life clear-headedly from this moment on. If you're ready to defeat Uh, I said it. If you're ready to get to where you can manage addiction, if you need to get to the point where you admit that you are tired of actively being in your addiction, or if you're a family member who has somebody that is struggling with something that is just tearing at you and you've been struggling for a long time, folks, that is what the body of Christ is about. The body of Christ supports people when they are down and they glorify God with the loudest voices when there is a victory to be shared. Tonight is a topic that speaks to people when they're down. and so, church, I want to encourage you that if somebody does come forward here in just a moment, surround that person with love and encouragement and be willing to be people that hold them lovingly accountable so that addictions can become manageable and they can finally get to the peace of mind in their lives that they have so long desired for. But if you, if you have a need tonight, we're about to sing this invitation song, and we encourage you to come as together we stand and sing.
1: Soul that's sinking, rest from the burden. does your vine reveal? Who hears your call for comfort when not but sorrow you tears from your eyes. Do you know my Jesus? Do you know my friend? Have you heard
2: Time, we'll have a couple more songs. This first one is going to be for the um, preparation for the Lord's Supper. If you've not had the opportunity to partake of that, please uh, exit the rear doors and the ushers will direct you to where that is. Uh, we'll go ahead and sing uh, We Saw Thee Not, number 726. Um, we'll sing the first, um, second, and fourth verses of this song.
1: 726. <clears throat> We saw thee not when thou didst come to this poor world of sin and death, nor yet be out thy cottage home, in that despised Nazareth, But we believe, the footsteps trod its streets and plains, thou Son of God. But we believe thy footsteps trod its streets and plains, thou Son of God. We saw thee not when lifted high amid that wild and savage crew. Nor heard we that imploring cry Forgive they know not what they do But we believe the deed was done That shook the earth and veiled the sun But we believe the deed was done that shook the earth and veiled the sun we walk not with the chosen few who saw thee from the earth the sand who raised to have their wandering view then low to earth all prostrate bend but we believe that human eyes be out that journey to the skies but we believe that human eyes be out that journey to the skies this
2: time we'll have one more song but if you haven't taken the moment to fill out your attendance online, or I guess a a card in front of you to be pasted in a basket out back, um, please do that. Uh, We are glad that you are here tonight. Those that are worshiping uh, online as well, we're grateful for you and uh, love and appreciate you. Um, Number 237 will be our last song, Uh, His Grace Reaches Me, and uh, we'll sing both verses of this song before we close in prayer. Um, again, Wednesday, we'll have our midweek Bible stay here and online at 7 p.m.
1: His Grace Reaches Me. Deeper than the ocean and wider than the sea, is the grace of the Savior for sinners like me? Sent from the Father, and it thrills my soul just to feel and to know that His blood made. Yes, his grace reaches me And will last through eternity Now I'm under his control And I'm happy in my soul to know that his grace reaches me higher than the mountains and brighter than the sun it was offered at Calvary for everyone, greatest of treasures, and it's mine today. And though my sins were as scarlet, He has washed them away. Me, yes, his grace reaches me and will last through eternity. Now I'm under his control and I'm happy my soul just to know
3: Our dear, gracious Father in heaven, we are thankful to be gathered today on this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the strength that we receive from worshiping you, Father, and edifying one another. We're so grateful that you are the master of our lives. Father, we pray that your love would fill us, that your love would pour from us, as we focused today on mental health issues, Father, we acknowledge that we are vulnerable to these things and that it does not cause a rift between us. But we ask, Father, that you would help us to overcome these challenges, not by ourselves, but through your strength, Father, through the strength of those that that we love and love us. Father, we know that we can accomplish great things as long as you are leading the way. Father, we know that we can come out from ANYTHING TERRIBLE, AS LONG AS WE FOLLOW YOU. FATHER, HELP US, MEMBERS OF THIS CONGREGATION HERE, TO SHOW YOUR LOVE BY BEING MORE AWARE OF OTHERS AND HOW THEY MAY BE STRUGGLING OR DEALING WITH DIFFICULT THINGS. AND FOR OURSELVES, FATHER, HELP US TO BE VULNERABLE to lay ourselves out before others, that they can provide help to us when we need it. Help us all, one to another, Father, to be holding one another accountable in love. Help us to want the best for one another, not just because we like each other but because, Father, we are all your children, and we want to see your children succeed. Father, here in this congregation, we want to reflect your light to the community around us, but also to one another. Help us to do that. Starting today, help us to be better at it. Father, we are so grateful for your son. We're so thankful that he showed us this level of love and much greater. That we can be here. That we can speak to you. That we can be a family with you as our father. Please go with us this week. Please forgive us when we fall short and pick us up. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.